0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The White House warns that federal workers who falsify their COVID-19 vaccine status could be fired and potentially face criminal charges. The Safer Federal Workforce Task Force says if an agency receives a, quote, good-faith allegation that indicates an employee lied about vaccination status, the agency can then request documentation to investigate the incident. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director, Jen Easterly, says the agency will stand up a new organization to develop cyber defense plans. The Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative aims to prevent and reduce the impact of cyber intrusions. That group will also merge the public and private sector to coordinate those plans. Republican lawmakers want to add a $2.5 billion amendment to the bipartisan infrastructure bill. That money would pay for installing wireless technology at Defense Department facilities. Senator Richard Shelby of Alabama proposed the amendment. coronavirus Delta variant has caused some federal agencies to rethink their return to office plans. The Biden administration now says federal employees have to get vaccinated or face strict testing measures. Mika Cross is a federal workplace expert. Mika, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you so much, Mimi.
1: I know things are still very fluid and, um, you know, we, we really don't know what's, what's going on um, specifically. But I wonder what you think... Um, employers and agencies can do about worker vaccination status?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a really important question. And I think first and foremost, starting with effective and timely communication around what the latest guidance is, as well as the latest expectations and the kinds of workplace flexibilities that are in place to support federal workers as they start to go back to the office, whatever that may look like, because as you alluded to, there is a lot of um, fluidity around the Delta variant and also how agencies are gonna consider requiring documentation and tracking and also training of the federal workforce in order to comply with whatever mandate is in place at the time.
1: So what should agencies be thinking about then when developing or revising their return to office plans?
2: I think first and foremost, just as all nationwide employers are considering right now, it's around the impact of worksite well-being and worker well-being. And I mean that both with pandemic-related measures such as PPE and training of the federal workforce and compliance measures with regards to social distancing, mask wearing, and the like, but really a focus on overall worker well-being as it relates to um, mitigating anxiety and stressors that can really impact agency productivity and mission delivery if not done well. I think it's going to be interesting in how agencies start integrating what the White House is mandating around values-based planning purposes and their latest guidance around worker reentry and work site flexibility with regards to remote work and other work scheduling flexibilities and how they'll start implementing that on behalf of workers who you know, are 60% reporting more stress and anxiety, and it can really have a, a high impact on how they perform their job.
1: Well, I mean, a lot of workers have been working remotely for the last year and a half, and you mentioned yeah. stress. Well, what can agencies do to lessen that stress when coming back to the
2: office? You know, in the latest Federal Employee, employee Viewpoint Survey data report, it was clear that those who participated in the FEBS were citing there's sort of a lack or an area of improvement around again, strong communication that's frequent and impactful. So number one, communicating issues around, you know, exposure or outbreak rates and also how people are gonna keep themselves safe to also helping to normalize conversations around psychological safety and how we're able to Support workers need um, data from the latest Census Bureau pandemic-related household post survey. Really indicates the impacts of well-being in the areas of stress, anxiety, and depression. And those kinds of indicators are hitting demographics of workers. Um, for instance, women who are also juggling childcare and parental care and, and caregiving responsibilities at a much higher rate. So I think first and foremost, those clear lines of communication and supportive measures, normalizing the conversation, normalizing conversations around what workers really need and how they're able to bring their best to work no matter where it's being done from is going to be a key factor.
1: So how do the new updates that come out of the White House and of course the Delta variant is surging. We don't really know what's going to happen with that. How do agencies stay flexible with their return to to office plans, given the nature of this, the nature of the beast, in a a sense?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I like to look at the data, right? So again, back to the latest FEBS and um, telework survey data that OPM and OMB has collected, along the way throughout the pandemic indicates that about 60% of federal workers have been working um, on a heightened remote or hybrid work arrangement already. And so you know, as they're making their return to office plans, considering how they can continue to leverage choices and options for workers is really going to help mitigate that, again, impact on productivity as relative to stress and anxiety around uncertainty and the unknown. So. It's nice to see the guidance that OPM has issued really focused not just on location-based work, meaning you can have the option to work remotely or on an expanded telework option or on-site premise, but also around all the kinds of flexibilities that the federal workforce has to offer and that might not have been available for workers to participate in as much because of the culture pre-pandemic. So considering choice, considering the business needs around why someone would have to come back into a physical workspace or not, and also the safety factors around whether or not these uh, infrastructure brick and mortar facilities are equipped to keep federal workers safe or not yet. And so starting there in terms of who's been working in this way already and whether or not you can continue offering these kinds of flexibilities would be a great place to start. Well,
1: Mika, obviously this uh, this is a big subject and we're going to have to come back to it as things develop and we'll continue to watch it. Thank you so much for being on the program.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Mimi.
1: Coming next, the busy buying season is here for federal contractors straight ahead on Government Matters, focusing on what's in the pipeline and limiting distractions. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Senate passed a new bill aiming to expand small business opportunities in federal contracting. This comes as contractors wrap up their acquisition pipelines for the fourth quarter of fiscal 2021. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. He's writing about three things government contractors should focus on this busy buying season in his weekly newsletter. Larry, welcome to the
0: program. Mimi, thanks. It's great to be here.
1: So how would this new bill change federal contracting and acquisition for contractors? And what types of new opportunities would be available to small businesses?
0: Mimi, the intent of the bill that's passed the Senate and will likely pass the House when they come back after recess would really put small businesses on the map, give agencies uh, in the government uh, a reason to look again at small businesses There are already a host of rules and legislation on the books, but sometimes federal agencies might need a little reminder to look at small businesses first. What is nice about this piece of legislation is that it's very consistent with what the administration is doing in terms of proposing increased contracting opportunities for small minority businesses. So across government, we have this push to Renew opportunities for small businesses and make sure that federal acquisition uh, officials look at them when they're considering making buys.
1: So let's talk about the use of partnerships uh, with other companies. Tell me about how it could be beneficial for contractors to have other companies, namely small companies, take the lead.
0: Well, Mimi, that's a great question, particularly this time of year. You have federal agencies that are looking for ways to meet their end-of-year small business goals. Making those goals is very important. And as we know, there are some sub-goals, whether it's women-owned business, or hub zone or veterans, whatever it is, an agency might be doing well in a couple of areas, but might not be doing well in others. So if you're looking to close some business right now, as a larger business, one way to do that is to work with one of these small companies that has a special status that a government customer could be looking for. Uh, They get the chance to take the lead, which gives them some business. You as the larger business get a chance to participate in a piece of work that you otherwise might not get to do because it's being set aside for small business.
1: You say in your newsletter that that you need to make sure that you can answer your customer's how question, which is how can they buy from you quickly and easily. Explain that, why is that important?
0: Mimi, this is important because no matter how great the solution is that you have, if you don't know to tell your customer how they can get it from you, particularly now, when we only have a few weeks left in the fiscal year, that's going to extend out the acquisition process. That's gonna make it more difficult for that customer who wants to buy from you to do that. Contractors should not assume that their customers have an answer to the how question. How do I get this great service? How do I get this technology or solution? So it's incumbent upon the contractors to say, here's how you get it. And we talked a little bit about You can get it from my small business partner if you're looking to get something quickly in a small business set aside and get credit. Uh, Or you can get it from one of my standing acquisition contracts or some other way. But contractors should be prepared, Mimi, with two or three ways that their customer can easily find them. And again, they should not assume that the customer knows. Some customers will have a preferred acquisition method, but not all of them. And I find that even experienced contractors sometimes forget that they need to answer the how question, which is why I'm writing about it.
1: Well, in addition to that how question, what would you say are the biggest mistakes contractors make at the end of the fiscal year?
0: Some of the biggest mistakes that contractors make are Uh, doing business with companies that they've never heard of before in an interest to try to close that little extra piece of business before the deadline. Look, your company has a reputation, you have uh, existing government business in many cases. Don't put it all on the line by doing business with somebody who calls you up with something that sounds too good to be true. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Another thing that contractors don't do is they don't follow through. Even though WE KNOW THAT THIS IS THE BUSY TIME OF YEAR FOR THE FEDERAL GOVERNMENT. SOMETIMES CONTRACTORS Mimi, ME WILL JUST STOP PURSUING A PIECE OF WORK THAT THEY DON'T THINK THEY CAN GET AND YET THEY COULD HAVE IF THEY HAD ONLY FOLLOWED THROUGH UNTIL THE VERY END OF THE FISCAL YEAR. DON'T STOP RUNNING UNTIL YOU CROSS THE FINISH LINE AND THEN EVEN KEEP GOING FROM THERE FOR A DAY OR SO TO MAKE SURE THAT YOU'VE GOT THE DETAILS DOWN. And that is, you've got to make sure that everything's signed, signed by the right people. Uh, your senior management has to be around to answer questions. Uh, the devil is in the details at the end of year. Make sure that the devil is bothering somebody else and not you.
1: So, Larry, finally, what steps can contractors take now to make an easier fourth quarter next time?
0: Amy, I think that a couple of things that contractors should do now. One is you have to focus, stay focused on what you've got coming up ahead of you. Uh, most contractors have a good pipeline. Uh, you don't want to be uh, ignorant to deals that you could possibly close, but you don't want to spend all of your time on things that aren't already in your pipeline. So you want to make sure that you've got that going. Moving forward it's always important to coordinate your sales and marketing messages together. Uh, Companies sometimes forget that sales and marketing can really be a good way to differentiate yourself, to get a customer's attention. Uh, Right now, you should be doing that right now for this season, but moving forward, planning your fourth quarter strategy in the second or third quarter on how to coordinate that message and make sure you've got your year-end theme is an important key to success every fourth quarter.
1: All right, thank you very much, Larry, for being on the program, I appreciate it.
0: Mimi, thank you, have a great day.
1: Up next, hitting lucky sevens for the Pentagon's top-line budget. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's in the pipeline for military spending and where that money should go? WE ARCHIVE EVERY EPISODE OF GOVERNMENT MATTERS ON GOVMATTERS.TV. I'LL BE RIGHT BACK. THE NATIONAL DEFENSE AUTHORIZATION ACT CALLS FOR SPENDING $777 BILLION FOR DEFENSE FOR FISCAL 2022. That top line number is $37 billion more than the budget for this fiscal year. Mackenzie Eaglin is resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Mackenzie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So how would the extra $37 billion for the 2022 national defense budget support initiatives like technology modernization that the Pentagon is considering?
3: Well, it's more money for everybody. So it's generally supportive of all the priorities of the Defense Department. But most importantly, what it is for the Hill is 3% above inflation for the Defense Department in the next fiscal year, which the Biden budget didn't offer. It shows that Congress is interested in funding the minimum required defense credit. That's what they've been told by, by various military and civilian leadership, at the Pentagon for the last half a decade, the past, they need at a minimum to compete with China, which includes technology, and that's with Congress signaling that they're going to to meet that need, whether or not the White House submits the right.
1: Well, you mentioned competing with China. Let's drill down a little bit on that. How would this budget, in particular, um, go to challenges, global challenges like that?
3: So. Throughout the bill text, well, actually we don't have the bill yet; it's still private. But we have a summary, a detailed summary of it, and what you find, of course, the common theme is competing better and more strongly, more quickly, and the Congress is emphasizing its preference for the specific. Preference. And that's primarily designed to compete against China militarily. Although, of course, you have to use all your tools of government. But this committee focuses on the military. And they fund a lot more uh, dollars towards that. And specifically, the combatant Commander for the Indo-Pacific region, he had an unfunded requirements list, and he gets an additional 700 million in what was not met with previous budget requests from Capitol Hill. On how the
1: pentagon can effectively distribute the budget among the army navy and air force
3: i think that's the big debate going into next year i don't think that uh, the biden administration had time to really dig into that question for the 22 submission nor do i think congress uh, has been interested in taking on being the arbiter of that debate but what i do think we will see is in the 2023 budget a significant shift in resources away from some services and bias and preference towards others particularly the navy but i also think it depends on you know how much of the extra money congress proposes will actually get to the defense department in the end by that i mean uh if there's a fiscal deal that's required to move legislation which it will be uh is it a number smaller than what the senate is proposing because whatever that number is is going to affect the 2023 uh, First and foremost. So, however much Congress more is able to give or not will determine uh, how much more resources might move among the services next year.
1: So, what about the civilian workforce that supports DOD? How would the 2021 budget affect that? Or, sorry, 2022? Sure.
3: Well, yep. So this administration has proposed growing the civilian workforce, but they're also proposing a, a cut to the active duty and strength or, you know, total roster, if you will, of the U.S. military. And what I think they'll find is uh, a Congress that's skeptical of that kind of an approach. It doesn't mean that they don't support the defense civilian workforce. I think that they they fundamentally do and and significantly. But I think they, they're going to want to see a corresponding, you know, increase or decrease for all of the defense workforces together, not a preference for one over the other. Uh, we don't have enough detail though because the bill text is still private again in the Senate. It's still unclear. So this is a question that has yet to be answered, which we'll know more as the Senate comes back into town and starts debating it on the floor in the fall.
1: Mackenzie, you recently called increasing spending on civilians while shrinking active duty force a quote, mismatched plan as it's outlined in the 2022 budget request. How can DOD leaders alter that plan to avoid undermining defense flexibility?
3: Well, I think that it ultimately rests with Congress whether or not they're going to agree with this approach. I think there will be some skepticism about cutting active duty military numbers while growing their supported workforce in defense civilians. Typically what you would see is that these workforces would grow or shrink in tandem because that would link priorities uh, better. Congress is very supportive of the defense civilian workforce. They're going to give them an equal pay raise to the military, I expect, when the bill becomes law. But whether or not one workforce should grow, potentially at the expense of the other, will be an open question. We don't know yet what's in the bill. I think ultimately you'll see a a more balanced approach by Congress uh, and this administration will have to just accept that outcome since they get the final word.
1: All right, Mackenzie, thanks so much for being on the program. appreciate it. My pleasure. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And we want to hear from you. Follow us on social media and let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm back in two minutes.